this morning we are going to be addressing a very boring and non-controversial topic. We are going to be talking about politics. <laughs> I wish I was lying, lying and laughing with you. I'm lying about it and laughing with you, but I'm not. We are going to talk about politics. Uh, so the passage that I was given this morning is Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. And when I was given this passage, I started reading through it, and I'm like, oh, no, this is about politics. <laughs> like the moment I started reading it, it was just obvious. I'm like, oh, Lord, I pray that as I start reading commentaries and, and hearing sermons about it, I'll, it'll lead me somewhere else. But no, it's about politics. <laughs> like that's, that is what the passage is about, and that is what we will be unpacking this morning. We are going to be talking about the subject of politics from Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Now, here's the thing about politics. Even though it's a topic that like, no sane person would ever talk about on purpose, right? <laughs> Unless it was like forced on them. It's a passage, if, if, it's a topic that if we're completely honest, it, it's more needed today than ever. See, like if I were to come up with a top 10 list of things to talk about after I just finished recruiting you, like that I shouldn't talk about, like top 10 things that I shouldn't talk about, <laughs> politics would be number one on that list. Like that, that's like the worst thing to do after you try to recruit a group of people this size. Hey, come with me. Let me talk about politics. It just, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't work, right? But even though it's, a, it's such a difficult topic to navigate, I would argue there's never really like a right time for politics, right? There's never like a right time to bring it up. But if there was ever a right time, this would be it. If there was ever a right time for politics, this would be that time. Partly because this past week we just had the national conventions, the Republican and the, and the Democratic one. We just went through the, the national conventions. And right, right around the corner, we are going to be electing the next president of the United States. The elections are coming up. In the United States today, there is more racial tension in the U.S. today than there's been in years. It's like if I feel like every time we turn on the TV or get online, there's, some, there's another shooting, or there's another event or something else, some other form of injustice, and it's just on both ends, and it's just, it doesn't stop. And if it's not a racially motivated thing, it's something that's related to terrorism. It's like every time we get on, we turn the TV on, every time we, we read the, the news, it's, just, it's another story about how the political landscape is, is, is just in a mess. And so if there's ever a right time to talk about politics, I would argue that this is that time. Now, here's what we're going to do. Because this topic is such a delicate topic, it's such a delicate subject, what I want to do is I want to set some guidelines for us, some, some parameters for us, so that as we move forward in this message, we all know exactly where we are headed, okay? So I want to set, set three parameters, three guidelines for us. The first thing I want to do is I want to give you a definition, the second thing I want to do is I want to give you a destination. And then the last thing I want to give you is I want to unpack for you a, a dichotomy. A dichotomy. So I want to give you a definition, a destination, and a dichotomy. The first thing I want to do is I want to give you a definition. Look at the definition of politics. I found this in Webster's Dictionary. There's nothing more reliable than old Webster. So this is, this is what the definition of politics is. Politics is the work or job of people such as elected officials who are part of a government. The worker job of people, such as elected officials, who are part of a government. Now, the reason why I begin with a definition is because the word politics is such a loaded term. 
that when I bring up that word, everyone automatically starts thinking different things, right? They're, they're, everyone, if, if we were all to define politics, if I gave you guys a, a pen and paper and said, define politics for me, if there's a thousand people in this room, we would get a thousand different definitions. And so because it's such a loaded term, I want to start with a definition so that as I use the term throughout the message, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you look at that definition, it's not as dangerous as the word seems. It's really basic. It's the job of the people who lead the government. That's what politics is. But sometimes we can complicate it. So that's why I give you a definition before we go forward. The second thing I want to give you before we go forward is I want to give you a destination. I want to give you a clear destination on, on where we are headed. We are going in a certain direction. Here's what my hope is with this message. My hope with this message is not to change your position, your positions with politics or your position on politics. My hope with this message is to change your disposition towards politics. I'm going to say that again. My goal, the destination that I'm going towards, it's not to change your position on politics, but to change your disposition towards politics. Does that make sense? That, that's, that's my goal. In other words, this morning, I don't want to change your values or your convictions when it comes to politics. I want to change your approach and your expectations from poli of politics. I don't want to change your values or convictions. I want to change your, your approach and your expectations. In other words, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a theology of politics. I think so often we as Christians, we, we, we get so caught up in, in the details and in, in, in the, the specific issues that we're arguing for that we don't zoom out far enough to have a theology of politics. And that's what I want to address. That's the destination. I want to give you a theology of politics. And then lastly, the third thing I want to do before we jump in is I want to unpack for you a dichotomy. There's a dichotomy when it comes to politics. And here's what I mean. Whenever you bring up politics in a room this size, there tends to be two groups of people that form right, right down the middle. And you would think I would be talking about Republican and Democrat, but I'm not, okay? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dichotomy that, that, that exists when you bring up politics. So if, if there was a spectrum of politics, there, there are two extremes that you can take when it comes to politics. One extreme are the people who idolize politics. They idolize politics. And then the other extreme are the people who ignore politics. So they both start with I. Idolize, ignore. The people who idolize politics are the people who find themselves elevating politics to a place where it's not supposed to be and expecting things from politics that it was never supposed to deliver. Those are the people who, who, who struggle with idolizing politics. They put politics somewhere where it's not supposed to be and they expect something from politics that it was never supposed to deliver. On the other hand, you have the people who ignore politics. These are the people who have become so overwhelmed, so frustrated, so just hardened by the political landscape that they've decided, you know what, I'm going to just throw it all away. I'm going to abandon the whole thing. I'm not even going to get into it. I've tried, I've voted, and nothing changes, so I'm going to just throw the whole thing out, and I'm not even going to worry about politics anymore. Those are the two extremes, people who idolize politics, people who ignore politics. What we're going to learn today is that Scripture, the Bible, God, he doesn't want us to either idolize or ignore. And what we're going to realize is that there's, there's a healthy gospel balance that God wants us to have when we approach Scripture. He doesn't want us to idolize. He doesn't want us to ignore. There's a balance that we're going to see, an amazing balance that only God can give us as we go through Jeremiah 23. So with all that said, now that I've laid the groundwork, we are going to jump in. And we're, like I said, we're in Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8. 
And we're going to look at Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8, under three headings. We're going to look at it under three headings. We are going to look at the failure of politics, verses 1 through 2. We are going to, you guys can put the, the points behind me. We're going to be looking at the failure of politics, verses 1 through 2. We're going to be looking at a faithfulness to politics, verses 3 through 4. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the fulfillment of politics, which is verses 5 through 8. We're going to look at the failure of politics, a faithfulness to politics, and we're going to conclude by looking at the fulfillment of politics. But the first truth we're going to see is we're going to look at the failure of politics. Look at what it says in verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. So, so the first truth that we see here in this passage is we see the failure of politics. We see the utter failure, the utter and complete failure of politics. Now, up to this point in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been going after the people of Judah. He's been going after the citizens of Judah. From chapter 1 pretty much to chapter 21, from chapter 1 through 21, he's essentially been going after the citizens, the people of Judah. But in chapter 22 and 23, he, he starts to switch gears a little bit, and he starts going after the rulers of Judah. Not just the people of Judah, but also the kings of Judah. And so that's who he's going after here in verses 1 and 2. And the way God approaches this issue, he approaches the failure in two ways. He begins by accusing them, by charging them with something. And then the second thing he does is he, after he accuses them and charges them, he then sentences them and gives them a verdict and, and, and casts out a verdict. But the first thing God does in verses 1 and 2 is he accuses them. He, he brings charges against them. There's three charges that he brings against them. One of them is they were destroying the flock. That's what it says in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying the flock. And that word destroying in the Hebrew, it literally means to corrupt the flock. They were corrupting the flock. So they weren't, they weren't just destroying them physically. They were corrupting them from the inside out. That's what, that's what these shepherds were, were doing. But they weren't just destroying the flock. They were also dividing the flock. They were dividing the flock. Because it says in, 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 the first, in, in verse 1 that woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering. So not only were they destroying, they were also dividing. They were scattering the flock. That, that word in the Hebrew, scatter, it, it, it literally means to disperse. It means to shatter something into pieces. So in other words, these shepherds only had one job. The job of a shepherd is to gather their sheep. That's their job. And so these shepherds were failing in the one part of their job description that made it their job. They were, they were failing as shepherds. They were supposed to be gathering, and instead they were dispersing and, and shattering their people into pieces. They were scattering and dividing them. That's what they were doing. And then the third thing he, he charges them with is not only were they destroying the people, not only were they dividing the people, but they were also denying them care. In the second half of verse 2 it says, Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you. So actually Jeremiah in, in, in the original language, he, he used, there's a play on words actually, because he says, Because you did not bestow care on them, then he uses the same word again, I will bestow 
a punishment on you. He uses the same Hebrew word twice. In other words, God's saying, because you didn't take care of them in a good way, I'm going to take care of you in a negative way. So there's two ways of taking care of something, right? Like you can use the same phrase. Like you can take care of a puppy or you can take care of something like a, an Italian mob boss takes care of or something, right? Like, hey, Jimmy, take care of him, right? That, that's not a babysitting job. Like, you're done after that, okay? So God's saying, because you didn't take care of the people, I am going to take care of you. So God gives them, he charges them, but then he gives them a verdict. And the verdict is he will punish them. Now, here's the thing about this first truth that I, that I think is so crucial for us. The failure of politics, the reason why it's so important, is because it goes totally against that first group that I mentioned at the beginning. Remember, I said there's two groups that form when you bring up politics. There are the people who idolize politics, and then there are the people who ignore politics. This first truth, the failure of politics, goes directly against the people who idolize politics. It's proof, proof positive as to why we should never idolize positive, politics. Because human-led governments are always eventually going to fail. So this first truth, the, the failure of politics, is for the first group, the people who idolize politics. Now, now here's the thing. There are three lies that I, would, that I would argue people who idolize politics believe. So they don't just idolize politics for any reason. It's because they actually, there's some lies that they believe. And because they believe those lies, they feel that idol, politics needs to be idolized. The first lie that people who idolize politics believe is that if we can just get the right candidate in office, everything will be fixed. If we could just get the right person, if we could just get the right candidate, everything will be fixed and all these issues that we have with the world will be gone. It'll be fixed. We'll never have to deal with it again. And it'll be better and then we'll go on our merry way and America will be healed. That's the first lie. The first lie they believe is that if we can get the right candidate, everything will be fixed. But here's the problem with that. Many people, what they do is they, they, they look out into the, many people who idolize politics, they look out into the, the political landscape, and when they can't find someone like that, then what they start doing is looking backward. And they start saying, okay, well, obviously no candidate exists like that, but if we can just get that president back, that was the president that really led America the way it was supposed to be led. If we could just get him back, oh man, everything would be fixed. Everything that we wrestle with, everything that we struggle with would be fixed and we would never have to deal with it again. But, but here's, here's the problem with that. Here's why this is a lie. I came across this book not too long ago uh, named Generational IQ. And the author of the book, Hayden Shaw, he, he makes this wonderful point. He was getting interviewed um, in this podcast that I listened to. And he quotes from the book and it was just a quote that really stood out to me. He said, one of the mistakes that older generations make with, with, with the past is that the, the older you get, the more you are tempted to romanticize the past. And the more you are tempted to think the past was something that it never actually was. And so you make the past something that never actually existed. And he, here's, here's why he says this is dangerous. I, I love this. This is what he says. He says, the reason why things, and I need you to pay attention. He says, the reason why things are not as bad as what we think is because they were never as good as what we thought. I'm gonna go ahead and say that again, because I know somebody wasn't listening, okay? Let me go ahead and say it again, and somebody needs to hear that. The reason why things are not as bad as what we think is because they were never as good as what we thought. 
And what he argues is if we would have taken the same questions that we ask today from people back in the 60s, 50s, and 40s, we would be shocked that many more people would have been in the, 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 the bad category even back then. They just weren't asking the questions because they assumed everybody was on the same page. Things are not as bad as what we think because they were never as good as what we thought. That's why that lie is so dangerous. The right candidate's not going to fix things. The other, other lie that someone who idolizes politics believes, I think this one's equally as dangerous, is after a while they kind of give up on the right candidate because they know that person doesn't exist, but then they believe, okay, but if we can just get the right laws set in place, if we can just get the right laws set in place, all of America will be fixed, and we're never going to have to deal with issues again. Let's just get the right laws. If we can't get the right candidate, let's at least get the right legislation. And as long as the right laws are set in place, everything will be better. But, but, but here's the thing. I'm with you. We need to fight for laws, right? I'm not, don't, don't take this as me saying we shouldn't stand up. There are certain political issues that can only be fixed with political legislation. I get that. But here's the problem. When you truly in your heart believe that laws is what's going to fix the nation, you are actually believing a lie. Here's why. I came across this, uh, this uh, sociologist. His name is James Hunter from Baylor University. He's a professor of religion and culture. And he says something that it just really blew my mind. He said, in general, now the key, key phrase there is in general, so not all the time, but in general, politics are downstream from culture. So culture, so, so in other words, what he's saying is culture is not downstream from politics. Politics is downstream from culture. So, so he argues that culture has a bigger influence on politics than politics has on culture. So he says the arts, the academy, media, books, music, celebrities have more of an impact on, the, on politics and on, the, on legislation than legislation has on them. Okay, not always, because he would use the word in general. Like I said, there are some political solutions to political, there are, only, there are certain problems that only political solutions can fix. But he's saying in general, politics are downstream from culture. Culture happens first and then politics happens second. And one of the mistakes that people who believe the lie, who idolize the, 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 the politics, is that they assume if we can get the right laws set in place, then we're going to change everything. But, but if you, the other day I was watching this documentary on CNN, um, and, and, well, on Netflix from CNN, and they were, it was on the 60s. And, and I was talking to Lon about it, Lon who is a baby boomer. And I said, Lon, you know what's amazing about this documentary? That a lot of the things that you guys are wrestling, that we're wrestling with today, were already being wrestled with back then. And a lot of the laws that are changing today are only changing today because the culture was already changing back then. See, so the laws aren't on the front end. The laws are on the back end. Legislation is responding to culture, not forming culture. And here's the thing, if, if, if there's anybody who should know that the law cannot change people's hearts, it's Christians. If, if, if God's perfect law couldn't change our heart and we needed Jesus, why in the world would we think that human laws are going to change human hearts? If God's perfect law can't change your heart, why is an imperfect human law going to change someone's heart? So if anyone should know that's the truth, it's us. That's why that lie is so dangerous. And then the third lie that people who idolize politics believe is they have to have, they're like, we need, the, we need the right candidate and we need the right laws. And the third lie is we need the right enemy. You can't really be a, 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 in politics if you don't have the right enemy. You need to know who's not on your side. 
You need to know who your enemy is. Once you know who your enemy is, then you're really starting getting into the political, the political game. But what Tim Keller argues is that when you start using enemy language when it comes to politics, what that means is that you have started to find in politics what you should only be finding in Jesus. Your primary identity is coming from politics, not from the cross. Here's what he says. He says, if we get our very identity, our sense of worth from our political position, then it's no longer about politics, it's about us. Through our cause, we are getting a self-worth. So that means we must despise and demonize the opposition. If we get our identity from our ethnicity or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant toward people who you think are bigots. So when you start using the enemy language, what that means is your primary identity is no longer coming from the Savior who died for you. It's coming from the party you vote for. That's dangerous. And that's why it's a, a lie that we need to avoid. We need to call out and we need to sidestep. So the first truth we see is we see the failure of politics. The second truth we see here is we see a faithfulness to politics. In verses 3 through 4, we see a faithfulness to politics. Look what it says in verse 3. This is God speaking through uh, Jeremiah. He says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. Verse 4, I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, if I'm, if I'm totally honest with you, this is the part of the passage that most caught me off guard. Because listen, if I was in God's position, I would have thrown all of it out. I would have looked at verses 1 and 2, the failure of politics, and I would have said, I'm done with this. I'm done with humans. I'm done with human rulers. I'm done with the whole thing. And yet, in spite of their failure, God remains faithful to the structure, to the political structure. How do we know that? Well, look, in verse, in verse 3, he says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. In other words, the very people who sinned and got themselves kicked out are the very people who God's going to bring them back even though they don't deserve. And then, not only is he bringing the people back, but he's bringing the power structure back too. He says in verse 4, I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. He's going back to the same system that just failed repeatedly. If I was God's political advisor, I'd say, dude, let it go, man. It's not working. Just stop. Try something else. Clearly, this is not the way to go. And yet he remains faithful to the system. And what commentators say is that the leaders who Jeremiah is making reference to are Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel. The, the guys who would, the, the leaders who would come when the exiles returned back to Jerusalem, those were the, the guys, the, the leaders, the rulers who actually were faithful to the Lord their whole lives and actually did their job. So God could have easily thrown the baby out with the bathwater and said, I'm done with this. And yet he remains faithful to politics. He remains faithful to human-led government. It's crazy. Now, now here's the thing. If, if the first truth that we looked at, the failure of politics, coincided with the first group we talked about, which were the people who idolize politics, then this second truth of faithfulness to politics is for the people who are in the other camp. The people in the other camp are the people who ignore politics. But the reason why you and I cannot ignore politics is because God doesn't ignore politics. He doesn't give you the option. 
The Lord doesn't give you the option to ignore politics because he is still remains faithful to the system. So in other words, you and I cannot, we can't be, we can't discount or discredit politics and just give it all up because God hasn't given it all up. He doesn't give us permission to. So, so no one is more honest about the brokenness of politics than God, and yet no one is more committed and hopeful about the beauty of politics than God at the same time. So, so we, we can't just abandon it. We can't just ignore it because the scripture doesn't allow us to do it. Now, here are some of the lies that people who ignore politics tend to believe. Here, here are some of the lies. One of the lies that people who ignore politics believe is that politics is the root of all our problems. So if the, if, the, if the first group believe the lie that politics is a solution to all our problems, the second group believes that politics is the root of all our problems. The problem is that's a lie. Neither, neither statement is right. Politics is not the root of all the problems, and it's not the solution of all our problems. It's neither. But that's the lie that people who ignore politics tend to believe. Another lie that people who ignore politics tend to believe is that becoming a Christian, listen to this, another lie they believe is that becoming a Christian makes you, should make you less political, not more political. So people who ignore politics are like, well, I'm a Christian now. I'm part of God's kingdom. I don't, I don't got to think about politics anymore. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm from another world. Right? The problem is, yeah, you are from another world, but you still need to be in politics. I would argue that being a believer doesn't make you less political. It should make you more political. Now, here's the thing. When I say political, I don't mean, you know, more bumper stickers and signs in your, in your, in your yard or, you know, buttons on your shirt. I, I, that's what I mean. I don't mean that. That's not even really being political when you think about it. When I say me, being political, I mean you and I need to think deeper. We need to think more critically about politics. When you become, before you become a Christian, you just choose. Am I on this side or on this side? That's it. But when you become a Christian because of Scripture, and because Scripture talks about so many key issues that different parties stand vastly different, like on completely different sides of the spectrum on, you actually need to think more critically, not less. You know how I know we have to think more critically? I'll give you a perfect example. If a white congregation went to the, bowling, the, the voting polls today, I guarantee you they would vote radically different from how IDP would vote across the hallway. We both believe the Bible. We both are conservative. We both worship Jesus, and yet we would vote totally different if we went to go vote today. Same thing with an African-American congregation. They're, they're committed to Jesus. They're committed to the Bible. They believe that, that God is in control of everything, and yet they would vote radically different than an all-white church. See, what that tells us is that Politics is way bigger than what we, we make it. We make it like very simple. You're either this or that. No, 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 no. It's, it's a way deeper conversation. There's way more layers to politics than what a lot of us assume. I came across this quote on Christianity Today, and, and it was this, this article that was written, and the name of the article was Goodbye God Gap. That was the name of the article, Goodbye God Gap. And here's what the, the, the writer of the article said. He said, it used to be in previous elections that at some point in the process, people's religion would come to the surface. Your faith would come to the surface, and you would be able to distinguish the Christians and the Catholics and everybody else. He said, but, but this year, for the first time ever, Christians and Catholics are more divided than ever. And so in the article, literally, the, 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 the point of the article is that gender will play a bigger role in politics this year than, than faith. Because Christians are so confused. 
So that's the world we're in. This is a complex conversation. This isn't a, oh, you're here, or you're there. It's just a, this is a very complex conversation. And we have to teach our kids that. We can't just tell our kids you're A or B. We have to give our kids a theology of politics. Because as, as the world goes on, parties are going to look way more similar than they, what they used to. And so if you, your kids don't have the theology and the wisdom to navigate those waters, and they're just voting for person A because that's who I'm supposed to vote for, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not theology. That's not wisdom. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important for us to keep that in mind. Now, we've looked at the failure of politics, and we've looked at God's faithfulness to politics, and we're going to conclude now by looking at the fulfillment, the fulfillment of politics. Look what it says in verses 5 through 8. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and who will do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. So, when the days, so then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of, deep, up out of Egypt, verse 8, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. So here, at the end of the passage, we see the fulfillment of politics. We see the fulfillment of politics. What Jeremiah does here in verses 5 through 8 is he gives us a portrait. He gives us a picture of the ultimate king that all other kings point to. The ultimate king that all other kings point to. And, and he does it by, by giving us, this is description, he tells us who he is first, and then he tells us what he'll do. He tells us who he is, and then he tells us what he'll do. Look at who he, say, who he is. The first uh, phrase, the first title that he uses, is he says he calls him a righteous branch. This king will be a righteous branch. Now, here's the thing about that language. In the Hebrew, a branch is not like we think of, like a branch on a tree. In the Hebrew, that word branch is actually a sprout or something budding from, something buds, a budding thing, a bud. So it's not a branch, it's a, it's a sprout, it's a bud. So here's the image that, 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 that Jer Jeremiah wants us to think of when, when he brings this up. Jeremiah literally wants us to think of the, the Davidic lineage. So the, 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 the Davidic dynasty was this big tree that God had promised David. But then because of the sin of the people, because of the sin of the kings, God came and chopped the tree down. The tree's dead now. There's no more hope for that tree. There's no reason to come back to that tree. The tree's gone. And then all of a sudden, a sprout comes out. When everything is dark and, 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 and all hope is lost, a sprout starts to bud out of the tree. That's the image that he wants us to think of when we think of this ultimate king. And then the other, the, other, the other title that he uses is he calls him the Lord, our righteous Savior. Now, in the NIV, I don't think it translates it the right way. The actual translation is the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. And the reason why that translation is so important is because Zedekiah, who was the last king Judah had before all this messed up, before everything fell apart, Zedekiah's name was the Lord is righteous. That was Zedekiah's name meant. It meant Yahweh is righteous. That's what his name meant. But then he's saying, now there's a king who's coming whose name is not Yahweh is righteous. His name is the Lord our righteousness. So he's no longer up here. He's here, and not only is God righteous, but now we are going to experience, we're going we're to take part in that righteousness. 
In, in the book, Gospel-Centered Life, the author just makes an amazing argument about, uh, he has a whole chapter just on righteousness. And he says that every single one of us desperately is looking for righteousness. And when we place our faith in Jesus, Martin Luther argues that we have, we get passive righteousness. Here's what passive righteousness is. When Jesus dies for you, not only does he take away your sin, but he gives you his righteousness. That's the theological phrase for that righteousness. It's passive righteousness. You did nothing to get it. And what Luther argues is that when we forget that we've been, giving pa- we've been given passive righteousness, we start flowing back into works righteousness. And so since we're built for righteousness, we want to have a right standing, and we realize, okay, well, we can't really live up to God's standing. What, what, what in the book they argue is that we come up with different categories of righteousness. So instead of gospel righteousness, we have family righteousness. I'm a good person because I'm a good parent. Or we have work righteousness. I'm a, I'm a good person because I'm a hard worker. And one of the categories that they use in the book is political righteousness. I'm a good person because I vote the right way and I stand up for the right issues. That happens when you forget that the righteousness you so desperately need has already been given to you by this king. And then he tells us about what this king will do. He says this king will, will rule wisely—tell me this wouldn't be amazing if we actually had a candidate who can do this. He will reign wisely, he will be just, he will be right, and we will all live in safety as a result. Men, I long for that day. Now. The question is, who is Jeremiah talking about? Who's he talking about? Because it's clear it's none of the kings that he's been working with. According to Scripture, Jeremiah was the prophet for five different kings, and all of them ended up doing what was evil in the sight sight of the Lord. So he's clearly not talking about them. Who is Jeremiah talking about? The funny thing is, Jeremiah didn't even know who he was talking about because Jeremiah didn't know the future. But Jeremiah is talking to us about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our politics. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is not just the fulfillment of our politics. Listen to this. He's also the ultimate example on how to deal with politics. He's not just the fulfillment of it. He's also the example on how to deal with it. There's two stories in Jesus' life on, 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 on earth that show us that Jesus is the example we need to follow. One, one example is Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, there's a story told where the, the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees show up to Jesus and they bring up this, they bring this coin to him. It's a denarius. And they bring the denarius to him and they're like, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? And literally in the passage it says they were going there to trap him. They were there for the purpose of trapping him. So they show him this coin. And this coin was a very controversial coin because there was a lot of different taxes that the Romans would put on the Jews. But the reason why this one was particularly controversial to the Jews is because it was one that Caesar just made up. And he literally said, I'm going to make you pay taxes just because you get to be my servants. It was like a head tax. You're a Roman. You're in Rome, so you're going to pay me tax. So if there was a tax that was controversial, it was this one. So they bring the most controversial tax to Jesus, and they, and they try to put him in a box. They're like, Jesus, who are you? Are you conservative or are you liberal? Are you with the Jews or are you with the Romans? Who are you? Tell us. Now, put, put yourself in a box. We want you in a box, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He does neither. He doesn't put himself in either category. He refuses to be pigeonholed politically. And he takes this coin. Here's what's amazing about that coin. That coin had the image of, this, of Caesar, and it describes Caesar as the son of God. On the coin, the description was son of God, high priest, king of kings. So if I was Jesus, I would have taken that and said, this is blasphemy. That's, he's not that. I'm that. But that's not what he does. He takes the coin and he says, oh, 
Okay, well, what's the image on the coin? What's the icon? That's the Greek word. What's the icon on there? Well, Caesar. Okay, fine. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So at the same time, this is just mind-blowing to me. Jesus is so incredible. He is submitting to the government and yet transcending the government all at the same time. He submits to it because he says, give it to him. But then he, he's transcending it because he says, listen, I, there's another kingdom that I'm a part of. And think about what he says. If he says, give to Caesar what has his image, but give to God what has his image, what he's saying is, give God you. Because we're made in God's image. That's way more than a political statement. That's a lifestyle change. He's saying, hey, give to Caesar what he has his little picture on. That's great. Yeah, give to politics what politics deserves. But give to God what he deserves and give to God what is made in his image. And what's made in his image is you. So give to God all of you. So give this, in other words, give to politics what politics deserves, but don't ever give politics your soul because your soul belongs to God. That's crazy. That's what he does. And then the last example I'll give you of how Jesus dealt with politics is, is, is Matthew chapter 21. Jesus, in the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus is on his way, right? He is on his way to Jerusalem. And all the Jews are ecstatic that he's coming because they're, finally their political deliverer has arrived. Someone who's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to fix everything. Now what a lot of people don't know is that the way Jerusalem was set up, there were several gates that Jesus could have walked through. There were several gates he could have come through. And one of the gates that he actually goes by in his path to the one he actually went through is a gate that would have led him directly to the Roman garrison. The Roman garrison is where all the soldiers were, where the bad guys were, where the enemy was. Jesus could have easily gone on that gate, and that's actually where the Jews were expecting him to go. You're a political deliverer, so go after the bad guy, which is them. But Jesus doesn't go to the garrison. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the temple. And he starts overthrowing tables. You know why? Because Jesus understood that their greatest enemy wasn't Rome. Their greatest enemy was Satan. Their greatest problem wasn't political. Their greatest problem was spiritual. Their issue wasn't taxes. Their issue was death. Caesar wasn't their enemy. Satan was their enemy. Oppression wasn't the issue. Sin was the issue. And so Jesus, instead of, going, instead of beelining to the garrison where they wanted him to go, because they assumed that their ultimate problem was political, he goes to the temple because he knew that their ultimate problem was spiritual. That's what Jesus did. And so in Jesus, we have not just the fulfillment of politics, but we also have the example on how to interact with politics. We as Christians should be the most politically aware people there are. There should, there should be no one who is more honest of their assessment of the political landscape than Christians. And yet, there should be no one who is more hopeful about the future of politics than Christians. Because we know this isn't it. And we know that the only reason why a president is a president is because God put him there. That's what Jesus tells Pilate. You only have authority because my, 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 my father put you here. That's the balance we need to find. So in Jesus... We have the fulfillment that we all so desperately long for. And until then, until the day that fulfillment arrives, we have the example to follow so that we as Christians can be the people who are most politically aware, most politically honest, and yet at the same time, the most politically hopeful. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for 
what you've done for us. We know, Lord, that at the end of the day, our identity, our value, our security does not come from what box we check in the, in the ballot booth, but it comes from the Savior that died for us on the cross. Help us to find that balance, Lord, we pray. And uh, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.